I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock and Murat Verdi. This is episode 396 for August 16th, 2012. Today's guest is woodwind player Dennis Soley. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo and Rob Grundle for the Jazz or Bust logo. Thank you for supporting the show if you're a member. If you're not yet a member, just go to thejazzsession.com slash join, and for as little as 10 bucks a month, you can become a member of the show. Thanks to uh, Jonathan Rafi Motz, who recently did exactly that and became uh, the newest member of the Jazz Session. You can also support the tour with a one-time donation at thejazzsession.com slash tour. The Jazz or Bust Tour, my attempt to travel the country seeking out jazz outside of New York City, starts again on August 31st at the 2012 Detroit Jazz Festival, which continues Labor Day weekend. I'll be there for that whole festival, bringing you news from the fest, and then heading west from there through the Midwest, the Rocky Mountain states, out to the Pacific Northwest, down the West Coast, into the Southwest, and any other place I can find that has the word West in it. So please do support the tour at thejazzsession.com slash tour, and if you would like to give me a couch to sleep on, suggest someone to interview, or help me book a poetry reading in any place that's along that route, which is almost all of the U.S., then uh, please do contact me at jason at thejazzsession.com. You can join the mailing list for the show at thejazzsession.com. There's just a link at the top that says mailing list. Click on that. You'll get one email a week. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. This is the third of six shows recorded in Nashville, Tennessee. This one with woodwind player Dennis Soley. We'll hear some music from Dennis and then our conversation.
My guest is a woodwind player and longtime Nashville musician, Dennis Soley. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So you have uh, you have been in Nashville since the, the early 70s playing music. And, I mean, I guess one easy question to ask is how things have changed in terms of being a, a session woodwind player over those years. Have you seen a huge change in the way that Nashville operates? The scope has changed so much. Uh, it's grown. Um, when I came, it was just things were just starting to open up. I think I came at a really good time. There weren't all that many multi-woodwind players at the time, just just a couple. And some of the experience that I had, you know, was, uh, I guess, you know, different from the folks who had been, been here. So I was actually very lucky and just started working, you know, in the studios right away. I didn't have to go to work at Opryland like so, so many, uh, so many young musicians when they first came to town. Now you're from D.C. originally, right? I grew up there. Yeah. And what made you come to Nashville? Uh, I knew a few people. Um, they kind of kept me posted on the music scene down here, and it, it sounded like yeah, the pace was a little slower uh, than New York or L.A. Um, the music maybe wasn't exactly what I had hoped it would be, but uh, but it was growing. So I said, you know, yeah, you know, there'll be stuff, you know, to play, and I can get some more experience. Uh, so I had been traveling around, did a little bit of playing uh, in, in a couple different towns and on the road and everything. I been living in Michigan for a couple of years right before I came down here but it was mostly because I knew a few people and they encouraged me to come so I came down and what kind of situations did you find yourself in when you first got here what kind of music was were you playing my first gig was a top 40 band uh, this was back when clubs were still you know kind of thriving and and young musicians could actually actually make a living playing in clubs uh, which I don't really see that anymore. I don't think it can happen. Yeah, yeah no. Most yeah. people, I think, have to include a lot of teaching and that kind of thing if they're if they're mm-hmm. going to focus on playing in clubs. But but that's uh, kind of where you know, kind of how how I ended up and and just been involved in the in the studio scene and and i don't kind of whatever goes on here you know been doing uh a little bit of everything and and now i'm now i'm slowing down and the younger players are kind of <laughs> you know doing all the the newer music and stuff that that's going on and i've kind of settled into uh, I'm, I think I'm only going to play the stuff that I really want to play. Well, that's a nice place to be in. Yeah, so <laughs> that's kind of where I am now. What was Nashville itself like when you first arrived? For example, I took, I've only been to Nashville once, which is now, and I've been here for a day and a half. And I took a ride to the Nashville Jazz Workshop the other day, and so I was in a cab for a while with the cab driver, and he was saying that when he first started driving a cab in the mid-'80s that there really were no clubs downtown, that it was – all, everything was just kind of really spread out and that it's only been in the last maybe decade or so that downtown has seen a resurgence. But I wonder, you were here even 10 years before that. 
where did you where was the work to be had in those days um there were a few clubs kind of on on the outskirts where uh some bands played but the hub at that time was printer's alley i mean it was that was where most of the the club activity was and and tell me who's a who's an outsider what printer's alley is oh um sorry that's Uh, all right yeah it's a uh, the name comes from years and years ago where uh the newspapers uh the printing presses were in the buildings on this alley it's downtown uh it runs between church street and union and um I think there's, I mean, there's still some clubs, but it's not you know, like it used to be. I mean, there were a couple clubs for show bands and, and, a, and a top 40 band or two and and uh, a strip club. Uh, they would have some stand-up comics. Uh, at the time, Boots Randolph was kind of an institution in uh, Nashville, and he actually helped me out a lot when I first came here. And uh, he played uh, almost every night in a club down there at the Carousel. Now, there was just, uh, that was it. So I'm interested to hear that uh, that he helped you when you first came. I'm never sure, you know, if that's going to be a very competitive situation when a new horn player arrives on the scene. But it sounds like uh, was there enough work to go around? Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, at the time, I mean, I think Boots was kind of working his way out of the recording and or the you know the freelance studio musician, which he had done for years and years, but. Uh, he had sort of made a name for himself and he was, you know, he had his own band and they went out on weekends and did festivals and stuff like that. So uh, his solo career kind of was taking over and I don't think he felt any kind of uh, 
threat, you know, from me. He was glad to help me. Sure. He would he would come and, you know, on the breaks. The the thing to do back then with the musicians was if, when you were on break, you went to one of the other clubs and listened to the other guys. And he would come over when I was playing, and I'd almost always go over and listen to him. That's great. Yeah, that's very much what you hear about, you know, the, the classic kind of New York strips where there were tons of clubs and all well, the that, people that would be was, going yeah, across the street. Was, yeah. That was the routine on 52nd Street back sure. in the 40s. Yeah. So uh, here's another kind of stereotypical picture I have of what it means to be a musician in Nashville. I kind of always imagine a bunch of, you know, supremely talented people who can play anything in the studio, and then at night they go out and they play, like late at night, they play whatever the music is that really speaks to them what if they're jazz players they go find a place to stretch out or whatever it is but that's that's only my the impression i have from hearing stories about nashville for years so you can correct me but tell me did you find what did you do to find kind of creative outlets or play what you actually wanted to play there were a couple musicians one in particular trumpet player named george didwell um and we got to know each other pretty quickly and i mean he was a you know closet jazz player and uh, he would have he or some other folks would we would have uh, a few groups that would play just sporadically uh, jazz groups a uh, couple uh, there was a fusion group that kind of mimicked the early Brecker Brothers band and uh, and another the early horn bands kind of like Tower of Power. But you know, different you know, folk band with four or five horns. You know. Sure. Uh, but none of those worked on a regular basis at that time. Anyway, I mean, we yeah, a couple gigs a month, and that was enough. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, everybody was busy just trying to make a living. Sure. And uh, can you tell me more about George? About whom I've heard some stories, but it sounds like he was a pretty phenomenal. Oh, musician! Wonderful trumpet player, uh, just wonderful musician. Mm. Um, originally from Memphis, I think he moved up here in his when he was in his early twenties and just kind of made it home. He had been here probably oh, more than ten years when I f- first got here. So okay. he was pretty well established, and and he actually. Uh, through series of connections, he ended up being the contractor for a lot of the bigger recording sessions, you know, where they would hire like a, a whole, you know, fifty pieces, something like that. And also the contractor for most of the uh, TV work that used any kind of larger groups. So that was a, a major source of income for a lot of us back then. Start, starting in the mid to late uh, 70s. And uh, so George was, you know, he was just, we kind of felt like kindred souls, you know. I mean, we liked a lot of the same music and we wanted to play enough, you know, to keep us happy. And But we were still involved in making a living, playing whatever kind of came down the pike. Mm-hmm. ¶¶ 
can you give me any idea of what playing so many sessions, what effect that had on your on your jazz playing? Can can you make any connections between one or the other, or even in the other direction? In some ways, I mean, it broadened my musical spectrum. You know, I think uh, there would be influences from all. You know, I mean, there was there was the the early the gospel sure. music was very big then. A lot of recording in that area. Uh, R and B had a little segment, you know, of uh, activity. So to speak, there was some some recording going on. We'd play some of those, and and then the occasional sort of country record, or, or let's say a country artist would do something that sort of crossed the lines, and then the horns would come in. Sure. For the most part, the horns weren't involved in the pure country records. I'd say I I could have been more of a jazz player if I had focused on just doing that. Um, to a certain extent, I think some of the younger players that come to town now can, to to a degree, do that. There's there's a market. There's enough uh, activity where they can play that way. But but the the jazz styles that are kind of prevalent now are still kind of what I call pop oriented, uh, and. And I'm kind of out of that just bebop, post-bop era, which I did a little bit of it here and there, and I was never what I'd call a full-time jazz player. Mm. Uh, I probably am more of that now, but I just, you know, I don't play six nights a week. Sure. But most of the stuff I play is, you know, kind of involved in that kind of music. And... Uh, can you talk about what you're doing now, playing wise? I know you play with BG Adair a lot. Is that right? Uh, occasion, mm-hmm. yeah. We play uh, a bit. Um, I play uh, kind of an early jazz group. Uh, it's it's the only r- regular gig that I have. It's a Sunday night thing. And, uh, and do you play clarinet on that, or do you play? I play clarinet and soprano and tenor. Okay, nice. Um, you know, some Dixieland, some early swing. Uh, kind of stuff, and then there are things that go on over at the jazz workshop where i I usually teach an ensemble class or two, and uh, a few private students there. I teach at uh, Blair School at Vanderbilt, and most most of the playing the outside playing other than any recording things that happen are related probably to the workshop or to the schools. I was at the workshop uh, yesterday for an event and just was completely impressed by it, especially given where you get dropped off before you walk in, and then to walk in and find that place inside it was was quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We give uh, directions for somebody that's been there, you know, never been there before, their first time. We usually tell them, okay, if you think you're in the wrong place, you're in the right place. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it just is in such an unlikely neighborhood. <laughs> that is the truth. Uh, and uh, so, what kind of students come there when you teach ensemble classes, for example? Who, who's in those classes? A few young players that want to learn something about the music. Uh, I've got a few high school students and college students. Uh, but at 
at the workshop in general, I'd say most of the students are there are young adults or even middle-aged adults who uh, were into music kind of as a sideline when they were young and then they got involved in their careers and medicine and law and whatever and uh, kind of established themselves in their careers and started raising families and now things are slowing down, the kids are getting older, they're established and they want to get back into music and it's like an early love that they want to kind of make make contact with again and it's the great opportunity to do that you get to play with uh folks around you know with your same kind of level and background sure and uh, an awful lot of uh, singers do that you know ladies that they wanted to sing and then they just got involved in raising families and now they're at it again you know some of them are great. You know, some of them are just happy to be doing it. Yeah. And they, it's the same with some of the players. Sure. You know? I mean, the, ones, the ones I have in my ensemble classes are usually the more advanced ensembles. Like we're doing the music of Thelonious Monk right now. Um, so I kind of I have to push them. I have to push them. This is, you know. This is not for the faint-hearted. You got to work at this, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's a few of them. They're they're all for that. You know, I get I get some kids, some some really talented. There's some really great young talent, and some of the older folks. They you know they do okay, and they're happy just to kind of be where they are. They don't have aspirations to be music stars or make a living at it, but. Uh, it's it's the workshop itself has become such a uh, a focal point for the kind of straight ahead jazz you know, that that goes on. A little bit of emphasis on what you might call the smooth jazz mm. stuff, but not much. Uh, mostly, it's pretty straight ahead stuff, right? You know, just the lineage came right out of the bebop. Stuff. Sure. Now, uh, I'm staying with the saxophonist Evan Cobb, in whose house we're recording this interview, and he was telling me about another part of your life, which is uh, doing woodwind repair, and he said when he gets his horn back from you, he said it's uh, it's tuned like a Ferrari, I think were his exact <laughs> words. Well, <laughs> that's, uh, that's quite a compliment. I'm, I'm just an old gearhead, too. That was, that was kind of a hobby with me. Cars. Yeah, and he yeah. he told me. Well, I'll ask you about woodwind repair in a minute. Then he told me actually that you said to him once that if you hadn't become a musician, that you had thought for a while about being a race car driver. But that that sounded as much influenced by a desire to see how you could make engines work better as it did by actually racing cars. Is that yeah? Right? Uh, yeah, I think that was that was more. Uh, I mean, the racing I did was drag racing. Sure, there was, uh, and which is more about the car right. than the driver. I mean, you have, you have to have a certain amount of skill, but, uh, yeah, you work on making making it run good. Right. Know, hooking up on the track and, you know, going like crazy. Uh, no, it was, it was just fun. I mean, yeah, I would fantasize about maybe, you know, a career there, but not really. You know, music was always... I knew. 
I think from the time I was 14, I was going to be a musician. Sure. Yeah. And, but were you always interested in figuring out how things yeah, work at a yeah, technical level? Yeah, yeah. My, my dad was an engineer, and, and he kind of pushed me early on. In fact, my first car was I, uh, I didn't get to drive it. Until I rebuilt the engine. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. I was 16. I said, okay, you know, my dad, he bought me this $90 Plymouth <laughs> flat six. Uh, and it was just uh, burning oil like crazy and everything. Okay, he says, we're going to rebuild this motor. You're going to learn about it. You know, uh, that sort of started that attitude of just. Uh, I, th- I think what holds people back is a fear, just not having the confidence that they can take something apart and put it back together like it's supposed to be. Uh, and I just, you know, early on, I think I, whatever, I just overcame that fear. I wasn't afraid to take anything apart. Sure. I started taking my horns apart, you know, when I was pretty young. Wow. Yeah, I definitely would have been afraid to do that, I think. So uh, tell me something about woodwind repair. It seems like uh, that it's kind of a combination of both science and art. Like there's a there's a feel to it. There's certainly the technical knowledge of how the horn actually works. But, I mean, I've, I used to be a saxophone player and had both good and bad repairs on my horns, and it seems mm-hmm. like there's as much of an art to it as a, as a science. Well, uh, what you went through is kind of what pushed me more – towards doing it when i was really active playing i didn't have time for it and i was on the road so i couldn't set up a shop uh but i was really fortunate to have a really good repairman in kind of my home base town and uh so whenever i got back in town i'd just take it to him but he showed me a lot he would because i was only in town for a few days i said you know can you help me out here and get this shirt and he would let me I'd just come and sit and talk with him while he worked on my horn he showed me a lot of stuff and that convinced me you know with just a few tools I could start doing this and then later on I was just never satisfied with the work that other people did for me I said I can do better you know I know what it's supposed to be like I know what it's supposed to feel like because I play it and that's kind of my approach when I work on them, I mean, I won't work on anything I can't play mm. so so that I can really tell whether it's working right or not. I mean, it's part of the process, you know. I, I get it, kind of get it r- close to being right, and then I'll play it for a while and say, yeah, this needs tweaking, you know, this, this isn't quite right. And uh, I, I guess that's, you know, Evan's, comment that i i kind of look at it that way i mean if i find try to fine tune it so that it is easy to play my whole philosophy is to eliminate the mechanical problems for the player so that when it comes time to play you're not thinking about a sticky pad or or a note that's out of tune or something like that so you just you you go in and you focus on the music. And that's always been, you know, but the mechanical end, it's fun to get it working that cleanly so that you don't have to think about it when you're playing. And that's kind of where I'm at with the, with the horn repairs. 
this may be a dumb question, but can all can all horns, or at least all the ones that you would work on because you can play them, can they all be tuned up in the same way, or do they have kind of nuances between them, or even between players? Do players demand different things well, from their Well, yeah, horns? some players demand uh, a little different things, but usually each horn, there's certain things, they just need to be a certain way for that particular horn to work the way it's supposed to. And, of course, you know, not all horns are created equal. Sure. I, mean, uh, I do some work on some of the older ones. I'd prefer just to kind of stay with uh, the newer generation of, of instruments uh, just because the sound is kind of what most people want and expect and, and the way the horns center and uh, the intonation is better on newer instruments. So... Uh, well, I'd rather be doing that. But some of the old ones have interesting sounds. Sure. Uh, usually that's the aspect of them that draws certain players towards them. It's certainly not the the ergonomics of them because they're really kind of antiquated by today's standards. But uh, but they're I mean they're f- f- fun to mess with, you know. Uh, I know that you've played on a lot of recordings by names that people would know. Can you can you mention some of those? Oh, this is uh, always a hard question. I know. That. Oh yeah, I don't <laughs> I don't think about it too much. Sure. Um, let's see. Did some stuff with Ray Charles and uh, Milton May. Um, there were a lot of kind of local early productions that we did. Were you around uh, when they had the the direct-to-disc craze. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We did a bunch of them here. That was uh, a couple people just jumped on that kind of craze. Uh, several kind of neat jazz albums. Uh, Barry McDonald and, uh, uh, and George was involved and in, George Didwell was involved in some of those. Um, did one album with a, a local percussionist named uh, Farrell Mornis and played with, had Stan Getz and Ron Carter. Wow. Uh, and they were, they were playing a festival in town at the time. And the producer grabbed them and brought them in on this record we were doing, which was, that was a whole lot of fun. Just kind of being in the same room with those guys. Sure. It was a real thrill. Uh, a lot of the country, the, the country artists. I mean, I've played on Randy Travis records and Loretta Lynn and Dolly Parton and uh, Mel Tillis. Oh, gosh, you caught me. You know, I could, yeah, I could make a list. Uh, it's always a hard question yeah. to ask someone to list all the things that they've done. <laughs> but you know, mostly, mo- for the most part, the artists that are uh, centered. You know, uh, Localized here in, sure. in Nashville, that do most of their recording here. Uh, yeah, played on a lot of their records. You know, played on Garth Brooks' records. You know, and the last ten years has been the only times where I've actually put out records under my name. Mm. Uh, although they're, I wouldn't say they're representative of everything I do. Uh, most of them are what I call kind of easy listening. 
uh, real smooth sounding, a lot of ballads, but some nice productions, uh, some really great orchestra string writing on it. They're, you know, great background music. <laughs> um, so I, I've, you know, I've got about eight albums, you know, and, on, with my name on them. So why aren't there albums that you feel represent you better? Uh, I mean, I was happy to do them because I was approached. Sure. I, it wasn't my idea to make these, but uh, a record label production company in town uh, had uh, kind of an in and a focus on, at the time, what they called the gift shop market. Uh, rather than being primarily in record stores, of which there aren't any anymore. Uh, but there were. <laughs> uh, but they would, they would uh, position these different kinds of specialized kinds of things in gift shops, uh, and people would buy them on impulse. Or that they'd play them, have them going on in the stores. And people would hear them and... Uh, so, you know, that's nice. Uh, you know, what is that? And they say, oh, now playing. Okay, I'll buy that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of the the market <clears throat> where uh, a lot of these were kind of generated for. Sure. So, and I was just I was approached because of the the way I played, which is uh, I don't know more lyrical, nice sound, uh, some nuance, you know. Playing basically playing pretty softly. I never, you know, <laughs> never really reached my full dynamic potential <laughs> on these recordings. But you know, some of them are some of them are pretty good. I'm not ashamed of any of them. Sure. Uh, but uh, like I say, I have more fun playing kind of the straight ahead jazz things that I do live, and haven't really done much of that in recording wise. Do you have a desire to? To get yourself documented properly, I mean, playing what you consider a representation of what you actually sound like. Uh, I I keep saying I got to do at least one, you know, one record that I do, but it's like I I do a bit of everything, and I I can't say I think of myself as a jazz player per se uh, because that isn't what I've done. I've done some of that, uh, but uh, I don't, I haven't focused totally on it. So, to me, the really, the real jazz players are the guys who just do nothing but that. And, of course, I admire them, you know, greatly. But I've just kind of been concerned with making a living and getting, doing a variety of music to a certain extent. Yeah. Sure. My guest is uh, woodwind player uh, Dennis Soley, and it's been such a pleasure to, to hear your stories and get a chance to talk to you. I'm really grateful you did it. Thank you. My pleasure. Good to meet you.
That's music from woodwind player Dennis Soley. My thanks to Evan Cobb for helping me set up that interview. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock and Murat Verdi. By the way, I could use some more name sponsors for the show. To become one of those people, all you have to do is kick in 50 bucks a month or one $500 a year contribution, and you'll be mentioned twice on every show for a year. You can find out more about that at thejazzsession.com slash join. Please do become a member of the show at whatever level you can afford or support the tour with a one-time donation at thejazzsession.com slash tour. Follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. And if you have any place uh, that I should be going to that you would like to either host me or suggest an interview or a place to read poetry anywhere from Detroit West, then please uh, let me know at Jason at thejazzsession.com. Thanks so much for listening. Now get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.